My name is Matthew Todd and welcome to Inside the Scaler. This is the podcast for founders and executives in tech looking to make an impact and learn from their peers within the tech business. We lift the lid on tech businesses, interviewing leaders and following their journey from startup to scale up and beyond, covering everything from developing product market fit, funding and fundraising models to value proposition structure and growth marketing. We learn from their journey so that you can understand how they really work, the failures, the successes, the lessons along the way, so that you can take their learnings and apply them within your own startup or scale-up and join the ever-growing list of high-growth UK SaaS businesses. Hey, and welcome back to the podcast. Here today with Charles Breck. As always, I'll, I'll let Charles, as with the other founders, introduce themselves, introduce their business. Uh, but I'm really excited to have you on today, and thank you for taking the time. Yeah. Thank you, Matt, for having me. So, yeah, I'm Charles Breck, founder and CEO of Legislate. We were started um, two years ago in Oxford, really to make uh, contracting and contracts easier for non-lawyers. And we're doing that by making contracts machine readable, which means that we're using technology to automate the creation of contracts, but also the sharing of the data in those contracts with the systems that you interact with so that ultimately contracting workflows uh, can be streamlined. Awesome. I, no, I look forward to digging into the, the detail of exactly what that means, um, as, as well as obviously some of the, the business side of the details as well. Um, but I guess first up is, is what led to you kind of founding Legislate in the first place? What was your, your background that enabled you to do that? Um, I know from our previous discussion, you are not a lawyer. So yeah, interesting to hear how you got started. Yeah, so although um, I'm not a lawyer, I was doing business development at another startup and was effectively the middleman uh, between our legal team and our clients' legal teams. So I was always, um, you know, maybe filling in the template, sharing it, and then waiting for feedback, and then, you know, looking at the feedback, sharing it with legal, etc. So I, I effectively saw a lot of contracts, dealt with a lot of contracts, learned a lot about what should or shouldn't be in a contract, but ultimately was frustrated by how long it would take um, a simple document, whereas an NDA or a very low value um, POC agreement to be processed. And yep. one of the key reasons was because, um, you know, these documents were never quite a high enough priority for legal teams. Um, which meant that most of the time we were just waiting for them to look at the contract. And then once they looked at the contract, the feedback was generally always the same. Um, so what I thought was, why don't we create a digital platform that me, the business user, can use to create those documents and have them reviewed without necessarily getting legal teams involved so that they can, to a certain extent, you know, trust the technology to delegate to um you know, non-lawyers, business users, so that they can actually take those decisions themselves, um, but all within a, a safe and, and robust framework. So um, that was two years ago. And um, yeah, yeah we, we've built that platform and we've got, uh, you know, thousands of users and um, many customers. Awesome. Now, I think that's, it's always good when you hear the the founder kind of you know, knows and experiences that pain point. It's a pretty common with people we we have on the podcast that we speak to as they were in that situation and that that was the thing that motivated them to try and get something off the ground um so how did you then go from experiencing that pain point having the idea you know seeing the opportunity to to validating it to starting to build it 
Yeah. So first of all, I needed um, a bit of capital because although, um, you know, I, I did study engineering, I'm not, you know, a developer. I, I knew how to dabble in code. So I, I you know, created a very, very rudimentary, um, you know, mock-up of what the app would look like, how it would work and the underlying technology. Um, and and then I pitched some of the angels that invested in the startup I was working at. And um, through that secured um, an initial 150,000 in angel funding. And, um, you know, then left left my startup, but I left on good terms, um, which was, you know, I think very important because, you know, they, they taught me everything. And I, I also wanted to, to a certain extent, build my app for them so that they could also benefit from it. So, um, you know, I think that's just one, one key insight is to always, always leave on good terms. Don't make unnecessary enemies. And, um, and they were very supportive as well. So that was great. So with that 150 built first version uh, with some consultants, um, and then we got a couple of um, early customers from the local Oxford startup network. And I think that the turning point was we um, came across a large student landlord who didn't want to, you know, it was, it was bang in the middle of lockdown. So didn't want to, you know, have too much human interaction when onboarding student tenants to their properties. And um, they thought legislate would be a good fit and it worked. And they sort of helped them save, you know, tons of hours, but, but more importantly, um, you know, it was all online. So they had all the data, they had all the audit trails that they need for their compliance purposes. And, um, and that was, um, you know, the, the key point, that we used to then raise a million pounds um, last year from one of the the venture funds that was also invested in that startup. So um, I pretty much just worked with my within my network to where I had a track record to secure that funding and and then built out um, the product initially with consultants. And then when we had enough funding, then we grew out the team properly with um, a proper team. Yeah, nicely. No, that's good to to know that you had that network there. And as you say, you, you didn't alien that net, alienate that network by trying to jump ship as it were, but you were able to kind of do that in a way that added value to them as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, ultimately, you know, this is a problem that that startup had and, um, and that I wanted to solve for them. Yeah, absolutely. So you kind of mentioned that, you know, kind of later that that second kind of round of funding, then in that bigger round of funding enabled you to start to build that team. What does the team look like now? Yeah, so today we're a team of twelve, and um, we've got a tech team of seven, and um, and then a, a non non technical team of five. So um, yeah, and you know, what are they working in office? Are they? remote are they you know all in oxford are they distributed what does that kind of look like you know these days for for that kind of tech team that was right for you yeah so um i'd say as as most startups um you know the team you start with isn't necessarily the steam the team you end up with in the long run um and obviously we've got you know some some people have been here since the beginning but um what we ended up doing is keeping in oxford um our legal team, sales and marketing, but also our knowledge graph team, um, because ultimately the the technology which underpins the platform 
is uh, a knowledge graph, and that's kind of born in in the in Oxford at the University of Oxford. So um, that's why it's key for us to have have that team here, and we yeah. our proper software development team um, in Seville in Spain. And um, that happened with lockdown as well. Um, we had a great candidate apply um, and we thought, why not? And when we secured that funding, then it was, we just thought, well, why don't we build that? Because it's working with this great, you know, tech lead. Why don't we, we build a team around him there? So, um, and, and so, see. yeah, we've got two offices. Um, everyone's goes in their respective offices. But um, yeah, one office is in Oxford and one office is in Seville. Um, so so yeah, it's it's not remote, but you know it's two two teams in two locations, two two hubs then basically rather than fully distributed. Exactly. Cool. So having kind of got it, you know, past that proof of concept stage, started to get those first customers. You know, how did you then start to grow that that customer base early on? Yeah. So. Um, we we started with uh, friendlies, and um, you know they were really crucial for shaping the product, providing feedback, um, but also you know understanding where where do they find value in our product because we obviously had a hypothesis around where they get value from using legislate, but you know everyone is different, everyone has their own you know views, opinions, so it was, it was very useful to kind of identify um, you know ultimately where is the ROI for them. And um, we then kind of did a bit of outbound to try and find more similar companies. Um, but but I'd say where we were the most successful is through um, inbound. So in my previous role, in my business development efforts, because I was selling machine learning technology, I always wrote articles um, as a way of, yeah. for myself, learning more about what it is that I was selling, but also to help clients um get a, a taster or a you know primer of what it is that we actually were selling um before going into those conversations so i thought for what we're doing it's really useful because we're targeting non-lawyers who have uh contracts to create so which means that they're probably not experts in contracts or probably don't create contracts often or um if if, if they do then you know, they, they're, they're struggling. And so really what we did was we decided yeah. to publish a lot of content. Um, last year, we put out 180 articles. Uh, this year, we're, we're already at 350 in total now. Um, and, and just by putting out that content regularly, having almost every single team member contribute meant that, um, you know, very quickly we ended up getting some organic leads. And, um, and through that, our, our efforts have been then focused on well, how do we, you know, get a free sign up to a paying customer? Um, but but yeah. ultimately, that's where we've we've been the most successful, and and we've now got over seventy uh, paying customers. Excellent. I think that's that's obviously the approach that we promote and recommend with with people that we work with. You know, outbound is only going to get you so far. It's trying to find the the 1% of the 1% almost that are ready to buy right now, but also have, you know, already gone through enough of the decision-making process that they are in a position to buy. But then if they've done that, they've probably been educated by someone else and already have somebody else's product in mind. So I certainly, um, yeah, would recommend a, you know, content-based approach alongside other elements as well. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you find out what worked from a content perspective? Because I see a lot of people trying to put out content. They'll hear people recommending, oh, I need to do content. And then they'll probably pay a copywriter to write a bland piece of copy that is pretty generic and you know isn't very value-adding at all. So how did you approach that? Or how do you yeah. approach that? So, yeah, we, we don't use copywriters. Um, and not that I have anything against copywriters, but I feel like, um, A, as a startup, we don't have that much money, objectively speaking. Um, and, and second of all, it's much faster for us internally to produce and publish an article than, you know, wait a week for a copywriter to, um, you know, pr- produce a piece of content. So it was all about speed as opposed to, um, you know, uh, strategy. So I think we definitely uh, winged it by just thinking what are the problems that our customers have and what problems might they be, you know, what, what queries might they be searching for to solve those problems. Um, so it was more just, you know, making sure that we had enough content on our blog to kind of address the the various questions of, of the key topics. And for us, the topic would either be a contract type that we offer or, um, you know, questions around that contract or, um, you know, if you think of the day in the life of your persona, target persona customer, you know, what are the things that they might do? So if it's a small business, they might do some accounting or whatever. And so how can we try to attract um, those, those customers. So I'd say for the first first six months, it was definitely very um, just making sure there was velocity and publishing around those topics. And I think, you know, by using tools like Google Search Console, you can also see what queries your customer or people are using to find you. Um, so that also led to a lot of new topics that we hadn't thought of and was a great way to just, you know, put out content. Um, but, but I'd say in terms of content, um, the other key thing to remember is that, um, you know, there's, there's, there's just because someone is searching for employment contract doesn't mean they want to create an employment contract. And um, what's really important is to make sure that you have content, which resonates with different levels of intent, because if you only have, uh, you know, research type content, so content that a customer will be searching as they're doing research, then at the end of the day, the chance of them becoming a customer are very slim because they're not ready to buy yet. Um, so I think what's really key is to make sure that you have a right balance between, um, you know, content that will educate and content, which is maybe a bit more transactional around, okay, you want to create that employment contract. This is how you do it. Um, and as long as you've kind of got both, then then I think you can really start to see an ROI um, because both feed into each other. And, um, and yeah, I've, I rambled a bit, so sorry. No, no, that makes, makes sense. I think you definitely do need to be putting out content and, and getting your opinion across at, at different stages in that kind of buyer's journey and decision-making process. I think too many people try and jump in at the last second, probably because they're, they're kind of to- told by all these kind of ad tech tools that, you know, you get some someone to a, you know, you've got to get a particular click-through rate to get someone to a landing page, then you've got to get a particular conversion rate, and then your problems are solved, but it, it's all focused on the latter part of the journey. But I think you, you definitely do need that balance um, across the, you know, throughout that buyer's journey, throughout that decision-making process, as you say. So you're not just picking somebody up at one point in that um, process, 
uh, you know, you you do kind of stay with them throughout that process to build that trust. So when they are ready to buy, they will already be knowing where they're going to go. Yeah, exactly. So in terms of the, the next steps then, you know, you've got content um, bringing people to you. You mentioned kind of the free entry point. What does that kind of customer journey look like from that point then to become a paying customer? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's free to register an account. Um, but if you want to create contracts, then you need to pay. And, um, you know, we allow everyone to kind of see a demo contract. We allow everyone to start setting the terms of their contracts, but it's only if and when they want to view the contract or electronically sign that they actually need to pay. Um, so, so I'd say, you know, in terms of the user journey, it's, it, we try to make it as easy as possible so that people do actually, once they've registered, create a contract. Um, and, and I think that's also where, you know, if, if you have content, if you've, if you've not been too, if you haven't been too thoughtful with your content, um, you know, you might end up getting leads, which are effectively just people signing up because they want to see what's, what your app does, but they're not actually interested in purchasing. Yeah. So, um, you know, so we do get users who sign up and they actually create a contract. So, so really what we want to do is we want to make sure that, um, A, we're attracting people who want to create contracts and B, we make it as easy as possible for them to set the terms of their contract so that they can be in a position to, you know, pay to unlock it and, and sign. Yeah, nicely. No, I, I think that that's a very smart strategy and I think people can get too caught up in these kind of false metrics um, of like, you know, number of leads or cost per lead or whatever it might be. Um, but, you know, the fact is that a lot of marketers will will tell you that a lead is basically anyone willing to swap their email address for content or their email address for a demo. But you're quite right that many of those people probably, you know, would not be in a position to buy. They would not be a good fit. So, yeah, it's good that you've been able to kind of identify the importance of quality rather than just kind of gaming the numbers. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And is that something that your investors and other team members needed convincing of, or, or are they kind of pretty smart enough to recognize the quality of customer is important? No, I think, I think they recognize that because ultimately if, if there is no quality, then you have no customers. Um, yeah. So, so I think there's that, but I think, um, you know, the other thing that we've been working on is, is making sure that we properly nurture customer well, leads once they've signed up, because I think, um, you know, it's, you, there's also customers who generally want to become customers, but, you know, they have their own jobs, they've got their own lives, so they need to do things. And so yeah. it might be that they need a nudge to come back to the app, um, you know, either the next day or in the evening, et cetera. So, so I think, um, you know, just because someone has saved their terms for their contracts and they've, they're really, really qualified, um, you still need to, you know, set them up for success because otherwise then you don't end up getting customers as well or you end up losing customers because they might, you know, forget or they might um, yeah. they find a solution which is easier. Mm. No, that makes makes sense i think yeah you do certainly need to stay on top of that and not make assumptions about you know bothering people or anything else uh, at that stage i think a lot of people can 
be too hesitant to kind of nudge mm. people back into in engagement. And I, I think you know, certainly the first 30 days or, or even the first, you know, up to 60 potentially days are, are critical in terms of making sure people are engaged with your platform in order to then, you know, get them to convert to a paying customer, but also then to ensure that they get the value from the platform beyond that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned obviously the, the, the content-based approach as well. I know when we talked before, you mentioned um, you know, some plans through through partnerships. I'd love to kind of hear a little bit about, more about what those kind of partnership plans might might look like. Yeah, so um, I think content is, is great. Um, it's somewhat predictable. And um, once you've done the work, it doesn't cost you any more work, if that makes sense. And, um, you know, if, if your domain reputation and uh, everything goes well, then, you know, the search engines reward you with more traffic. And, um, you know, in our case, traffic has been compounding organically quite steadily every, every month. And, you know, that leads to more signups, it leads to more customers. But I think, um, you know, there, there's only so much that content can do at a certain pace and with it for a certain amount of budget, if that makes sense. So what we've been doing is we've been looking at ways to really scale um, our customer base. And obviously we still do outbound um, because outbound is also very useful for, um, you know, maybe getting a lot more feedback from your customers, even if they're not interested, at least you might understand, you know, what it is that they're thinking about. Because one thing about inbound customers is, yes, they're more likely to become a customer, but they're also less likely to share feedback. Um, so, so I think it's important to do some outbound so that you do have that at least some communication and um, et cetera. But, but I think where we're, where we're scaling is really through um, partnerships with, with co- companies that also service our target market. So, um, but obviously for uh, tangential services and, and yeah, we've just partnered with, um, one of the UK's largest company formation groups to help, you know, entrepreneurs that are incorporating their business, help them, you know, start off with some, you know, a great suite of lawyer approved contracts cost effectively. And, you know, that, that should hopefully really, you know, help us get to the, the other level, the other level. Um, but we're also thinking of partnerships to really offer a complete user experience to our customers. So, um, if you're a landlord or a, or a small business or, or whatever, you might need insurance. Um, you know, there, there are various other services that are connected to your contract. And by being able yep. to write policies, um, you know, we, we hope to offer a, a more complete experience and, and in turn also, um, you know, make increase customer stickiness, if that makes sense. Yeah, I see offering a more complete solution to particular kind of segments and types of customers. Yeah, exactly. Cool. No, excellent. I think partnerships are, are definitely something to explore once you've got that product market fit. But I would say also you need to have that go-to-market fit that you've got as well with the, the content-based approach. So then you do have something more tangible to go to those potential partners with, but I think you also do get to be a bit more strategic about the 
um, partners that you take on, how you manage those partners, rather than just, oh, we're early stages, you know, would you be interested in, in reselling this for us? And everyone has a great conversation. They probably want leads from you and vice versa. And then, you know, no one actually gets any leads, but you have a lot of conversations. Yeah, no, I, I think, um, you know, we, we definitely, you know, we only approach partnerships in the past couple of months, you know, after a good year and a half of um, building a product and going to market. And, and you're right, I think um, if, if you don't have a solid business model or, or app or customer stream, then then partners won't be interested. And um, I think the, the, the type of partnership that you can do before, though, is more content type partnerships where, you know, I post on your blog, you post on mine and, um, you know, it then helps your content strategy even more and it, and it and it makes everyone seem a little bit bigger than they really are. Um, and it also creates brand awareness with, you know, the right target groups as well. You know, if you, if you do a guest post with on, on a, you know, a, a, a tangential solution or whatever, or a potential future partner, then it also helps create some awareness before you do reach that stage where you can properly partner. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's very smart. I think, yeah, looking for content partnerships early on and then, you know, there's fulfillment or white label partners. Once you've you've got past that stage of product and, and go to market fit is definitely a a very good approach to help with with growth. So you kind of mentioned uh, at the beginning the you know looking to make contracts machine readable as well as human readable, so you can do other things with that data. I'd love to know kind of more about what that you know looks like in practice and what that that could um, evolve into. Yeah, so I think the the key thing is that um, a contract which is not machine readable um, typically is only lawyer readable, which means that um, you know if you're not a lawyer, it, it can be challenging to really understand you know if your contract is a good contract, if it has everything you need, or, or more importantly, what might be if there are things missing from a contract. You know, if you're not a lawyer, it's really difficult to answer those questions. Um, the other issue is that. Um, it's also difficult post-signature to track what's in your contract, um, but it's also difficult to answer questions post-signature about, you know, you know, how many of my employees are on a 30-day notice period or how many of them are on a probation period ending in two weeks, how many report to a certain line manager. These are all questions which are really difficult to answer because contracts are not machine-readable. So we make contracts machine-readable using knowledge graph technology, which is um, we've, we've had two patents granted and a third one pending for this whole approach. And knowledge graphs are a branch of AI um, that Google uses to structure the web, so to establish connections and, and allow a uh, relevant and um, efficient navigation of the web. And so we've taken that same approach uh, for modeling contracts and documents which means that um, you, know, you can query your contracts, you can get those insights very quickly, uh, all using tech, you know, digitally and without having to actually read the contract or without actually having to ask a lawyer to answer those questions. So um, that, I guess, was a very technical introduction. Um, but from a user's perspective, they don't, you know, they don't know that necessarily that they're interacting with a knowledge graph. Um, all they know is that they're creating a contract by answering questions in a form question and answer type style in a very simple form um, where questions are all interlinked and 
you know, if, if for example, um, you select something, then questions which are not relevant disappear. Um, and, and, and we've got a lot of flexibility thanks to the knowledge graph, which means that really, um, you know, compared to other document builders, so we, we have a document builder, um, that's kind of how you create a contract, but we have a lot more flexibility thanks to the knowledge graph. Um, and then after the document's generated, uh, everything is tracked in the knowledge graph. So, um, so I say you, it, it's really giving control to our users of the data that's in their contracts. Um, and, and yeah. No, I, I think that is a very, very different approach. I think it's a very, very powerful approach. And yeah, I can already see some, you know, really powerful use cases, yes, for kind of reporting on that data, but also, you know, integrating with that data as well. You know, I can imagine like an onboarding in process for a, a new employee. You know, you, as you say, you've got their kind of holiday terms, you've got their, you know, the salary and everything else in the contract. So why not push it out from that contract into all of the other systems and places that it, it needs to be? Yeah, that's, that's really the plan. We've, you know, there's, there's, we're going one step at a time. Um, we focus first on making the data usable to our users and yeah. we definitely in, in the longer term to, um, you know, make that data exchangeable with those services so that you don't have to manually re-enter that information across the systems that you use. No, I think that's very powerful. I think there's a lot of potential there. And one thing you, you mentioned there was IP protection. What does that, that look like in practice? Yeah. So, um, I think as as a startup it's really important to protect your ip because ultimately um you know 99% of of the value of your business is, is your ip or at least at least from the investor's perspective um and so ip needs to be protected but what that means in practice is you need to have um a moat around your ip to prevent competitors from um you know using it or, or appropriating it so um obviously you can protect your IP on a case-by-case basis with contracts and NDAs, but that doesn't um, scale beyond businesses or people or consultants that um, you are interacting with. So we took the approach to, or the decision to file uh, patents to protect our approach, give us a bit more protection. Um, And we did that by filing in the US because the US is typically the first market you file in because you can accelerate um, the application process, which you can't do in other jurisdictions. And that's how we were able to get our patents granted quickly. And then afterwards, what you do is you then convert your patents um, across into, you know, patents of other jurisdictions via international patent treaties. Um, and then it goes through the maybe more of the typical process in each of those jurisdictions so um but at least there's a precedence of a patent in a jurisdiction which um for our case also happens to be our you know the, the biggest market in terms of size we're not in the u.s yet but at least we've got coverage there um so, so yeah we, we've we've got two patents um a third one pending and i'd say the plan is definitely to build a portfolio of patents so that we have um I'd say maximum coverage of our protection, and um, and then that's that's what we're doing. But I say, you know, ultimately 
what's what's even better than patents is just um, execution and just um, you know growing quickly and and getting lots of users and lots of customers in all these jurisdictions um, because the sooner we do that the sooner we'll just have market dominance yeah no it makes sense I think you it's definitely good to have as much protection as you can but you know you need that growth alongside that otherwise you don't have a business so you said that kind of US first approach you know makes a lot of sense because it's the biggest market and and route to kind of extending expanding that protection you know for other kind of founders of you know tech companies platforms you know how long does that kind of process take how much does it cost you know how difficult is it to to try and go through that kind of process you know from a uk seeking to get protection in the us yeah so i think it's it definitely isn't as complicated as as people think um I mean, it really also depends on if you're a hardware or a software business. Um, one of the patentability requirements is that it, it can't be done in your head. And uh, the problem with software is um, if you write the steps down, then an examiner can always argue that it can be done in your head. So I'd say it's, it's really important to, um, I'd say it's more of a, there's a bit of a, a methodology to follow when it comes to writing software patents. Um, whereas for hardware, um, you know, you can actually, you know, it, I wouldn't say it's easy to get a patent, but the the, the issue with it being with, with the, is it something you can do in the head is, is less likely to be an issue. So I think those are the two things. And then depending on in which bucket you fall in, you can either choose to prepare the application yourself, which I think, you know, is always important. Um, but the application needs to be prepared within a certain style. And, and after, so all of that is free. You know, if, if you can do all, do all of that for free. Um, you, can, you can also write your own claims and you can file. Um, so then you just need to pay the filing fees, uh, which are a couple of hundred dollars. Um, and then if you want to accelerate the process, then it's, you know, a couple of hundred dollars extra. Um, but where you probably do want to work with um, a patent attorney is is around the claims because there is an art to how you design your claims so that if ever an examiner kind of pushes back, then you end up with a fallback option, which is, you know, still something that you wanted as opposed to not ending up with a fallback and, and having nothing. So, so there's an art to how the claims are designed and that's where you probably do want to seek expertise. Um, but there is also, you know, an art to the actual application. So I, I, you know, in our case, I wrote the applications, but still worked with an examiner to, uh, not an attorney, sorry, to shape the application. Um, and I, I don't know if it, if it helped because I, I didn't, I haven't done an application without uh, an attorney, but I think, um, you know, it, it is, it is quite, uh, it, it can be quite, um, complicated to really understand you know how everything works and i think um if you have budget then i would definitely recommend um to work with an attorney yeah no that makes sense i think you know there are a lot of startups scale-ups that probably you know don't have the right contracts in place to start with and obviously a platform like yours can certainly help with that but i think also they don't often have the right level of of other types of IP protection in place 
even just with the, the more limited set that you can do in the UK, but certainly further afield as well. You know, a lot of companies will have that ambition of going to the States. You know, it's a, a very, very big market for for a lot of um, a lot of companies, obviously. Um, so I think, yeah, getting that protection early on does make a lot of sense. Otherwise, your your growth plans might be kind of held back before they've even started. Exactly. So what's next for for legislate then i know you talked about some of the more data um related items but how do you see kind of legislate growing over the next next couple of years yeah so um you know in in our case we've built a product we've got customers users um we're obviously adding more contract types um to the platform so that we really can ensure that our customers can create anything that they need to create on legislate um, but I'd say our next phase of growth will be coming from uh, APIs. So we're building a public API version of our platform so that um, other software platforms can integrate Legislate into their workflows um, to offer a, you know, a, offer contracting in their apps. Um, and so I'd say, you know, we've, we've had quite a lot of interest from some property related platforms. Um, we're, kind of exploring how that looks like in practice. And um, I think that will lead to some very interesting use cases and um, insights, but we're also looking at um, employment um, and and effectively, yeah, trying to kind of work out which platforms we can grow with. And um, I'm sure that once we've actually integrated, then we'll end up with um, a lot more users, a lot more customers. And then it'll be interesting to see you know, what what problems emerge from that or opportunities emerge from that. Yeah, fantastic. No, that sounds sounds like you've got a lot of kind of clarity on that vision, a lot of plans for for growth based on that as well. So I think, yeah, it sounds like you've done a, a great job kind of launching Legislate at a potentially tricky time and I wish you all the best in in growing it over the next next few kind of months and and years. Um, so before we, we go, is there anything else, any other kind of bits of advice that you'd give to kind of fellow startup scale-up founders? Yeah, I mean, I think the, um, the key piece of advice is, uh, you know, my legal might seem like an unnecessary expense. Um, and, you know, I'd say in most cases, legal bills are way too expensive for what um, what you are, and I think especially if you are a startup founder, you you pretty much only get one shot at making it right. So, you know, if, if you have limited funding, um, you know, it, it might seem like a massive gamble to spend a couple of thousand pounds um, on a set of documents. And um, I agree, you know, it's it's a huge expense, and um, it, it it isn't actually going to move your business forward. All it will do is um, protect your business in case something goes wrong and things do go wrong. Um, and and I'd say if 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 you kind of appreciate that um, things can go wrong and that it, you do need good contracts that are lawyer approved, then I definitely suggest um, you know checking out Legislate because we offer all the lawyer approved contracts. We we get our library templates from the same libraries as law firms, um, and our legal teams go through them and really. I'd say adapt them so that they're written in plain English, but also adapt them um, so that you can, um, you know, get the flexibility that you want. 
So, you know, for example, you're hiring a software developer, there's a question and we'll, if you select it, add some extra clauses which are relevant to software developers. Um, and then post-signature, you have all your contracts in one place, which, you know, it might seem like an overkill if you have a team of five, but, you know, you will still generate contracts. And then if and when you do reach a point where you need to raise funding and go through a due diligence process, then you've effectively automated, you know, hours and hours of, or even days of what would of work um, by using Legislate. So um, I'd, I'd say it kind of is, you know, the tool that, you know, you should start using as early as possible in your journey um, because it will, the, the benefits will compound in time. And especially as you do grow, um, you know, it'll make your life so much easier. Um, you'll have the data, you'll be able to create new contracts faster um, and you'll be compliant. Cool. I think that's great advice. I'll be dropping obviously links to uh, legislate in the in the notes for this episode as well, so people can can take a look, check it out, see if it's a good fit for them. Um, but I think especially that point on due diligence is is really important for a lot of startup founders, especially if they're looking to fundraise. At some point, too many you know, have regret at that point when they start to go through those processes and, you know, can be painful processes. So if there are simple things that can make, you know, their lives easier, you know, more cost effective, more time effective in the early days, that's that's going to compound as you say, then I think those types of efforts are certainly worth doing. So, um, yeah, thank you for that. I think there's a lot of interesting lessons for startup scale-ups from here, not least the, you know, importance of, you know, product market fits, content-based approaches that you know, pick up the right kinds of customers. Um, so thank you for taking the time today. And yeah, I look forward to catching up again soon, hearing how some of those growth plans have have been able to help move things forward for you. Yeah, thank you, Matt, for having me and uh, the, the opportunity to give Legislate a platform um, for your audience. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Inside the Scaler. Remember, for the show notes and in-depth resources from today's guest, you can find these on the website insidethescaleup.com. You can also leave feedback on today's episode, as well as suggest guests and companies you'd like to hear from. Thank you for listening.